created live on Fireside. Hi, everybody. It is uh, time for Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe. We're having a little bit of audio, audio issues today. I moved my office around. It looks really good, um, but I didn't. something's going on with my microphones and stuff, so we're not going to have the background music today. So welcome to Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe. Uh, this is the November Think Tank episode. Um, as we typically start the show each week, we talk about what are some of the top news items of the day. Uh, so coming at us from inside higher ed, skepticism on affirmative action. Uh, yesterday, um, the uh, U.S. Supreme Court heard arguments about uh, the affirmative action cases out of Harvard and the University of North Carolina. Most of the Supreme Court appears impatient. Uh, about uh, affirmative action is looking for an end, but justices appointed by the Democrats made the case for the practice. Uh, we want to keep an eye on this. We won't know the final determination on this until, uh, not until probably the spring, but uh, we're going to keep talking about this. We will uh, allow for us to have some discussions moving throughout the months ahead. Uh, also to us from inside higher ed, Stanford mascot suspended over a banner. Uh, the person who portrays the mascot of Stanford University's marching band, the Stanford Tree, has been suspended after pulling a stunt at a recent game against Arizona State University. According to ESPN, the tree helped display a banner at halftime that read, Stanford hates fun an apparent reference to an ongoing controversy at the school over administrators allegedly restricting campus parties. The suspension was announced in a tweet from the tree's Twitter account at the Stanford tree. So if you follow the Stanford tree on the Twitter, you will find out more about this ongoing mascot related issue. Um, and then finally, uh, we are going to talk later on today inside, from Higher Ed Dive. There was an article yesterday, it's time for colleges to abandon legacy admissions, the new research study shows. Uh, data Trove released during the lawsuit against Harvard University's race-conscious admissions practice gave an unprecedented look into how the country's wealthiest college vetted prospective students. One fact that was unearthed, Harvard applicants whose family members attended the Ivy League institution were nearly six times more likely to secure admission than those without a parent who went to Harvard. Um, so later on today, we are going to talk about legacy admissions, what that means, um, how timely it is as we're looking at uh, the matters related to the Supreme Court, but then also what we are actually looking at long term for all admissions and what it means for folks to be able to uh, gain admission to some of these uh, highly sought after institutions. Um, and so today we uh, have back on the um on the uh, think tank and on the show, Gage Payne uh, and Corey Davis and Jason Pina. So we're gonna go around the, the horn, ask everybody how they're doing on this first day of November. Uh, Gage is joining us from O-K-L-A-H-O-M-A, -A -A, Oklahoma. Uh, Gage, how's it going uh, in your new digs and uh, how's, it, how's, uh, how's things happening there? It's been great, we're having a, a good fall. And the only thing that I want to say is I spent some time, you know, going down a Twitter hole today because I am fascinated by this apparently not completely new Halloween phenomenon of offering kids a potato. Oh, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Take the dadgum potato. <laughs> People were running out of potatoes. Yes. Because kids were taking potatoes. And so yes. I have no idea what that's about, but I find <laughs> it fascinating. I absolutely appreciate people who offer toys and other opportunities for kids to pick something other than candy. But I have to say in a million years, I never would have thought of a potato. 
So for those who aren't unaware, um, my husband and I were talking about this yesterday. There were some people out on the interwebs uh, who decided to give put a potato in their bucket with the candy and kids would come up to the house and they would see one potato. It wouldn't be multiple potatoes. It'd be a singular potato that would be in the bucket with the rest of the candy. And when the kids would come up and they'd go, what's that? They go, it's a potato. You can take the potato or you can take candy. And it was amazing how many people actually took potatoes. Some parents were a little puzzled. Some parents, they themselves, I think, were looking for candy. Um, and, uh, one of the people I saw on the internet, she gave out like a 20 pound bag of potatoes. Um, and apparently it is a thing because people know this house is the potato house. Yes. Yes. You go to get a potato each year. You know, the things I don't know. No. Well, and the other thing that I thought was funny was the parents who came up and say, this is a potato house. We've been looking for the potato house. And the kids were very excited. I got a potato. And um, so the person who has done far too much student conduct in her life was worried that the potatoes would become projectiles. But maybe <laughs> it just goes to show what we do for a living does impact our outlook in life. Uh, speaking of people who do much conduct for the living, uh, Corey, how is it going up in Vermont? Uh, the leaf peepers gone. What's going on? Yeah, no, things things in Vermont are going swell. Leaf, peep, leaf peeping season was really like, I don't know, peak about a couple of weeks ago. I heard there were two and a half hour lines and waits around Stowe, which is just bonkers and crazy. Wow. And uh, that's a, that hearing about that potato thing is new for me. Yet I know buddies of mine in high school, their parents took them out for a few weeks to dig potatoes on their family farms. There are potato farmers in northern Maine who are loving this. Let's get it trending. Maybe I'll give out potatoes next year. <laughs> Um, I hope I remember it. I hope I remember it. So it's great to be here. Okay. Awesome. And so Jason Pinock joining us from New York City. How's it going, Jay? Oh, let's make sure Jason's off mute. He's having trouble unmuting. He's having trouble unmuting. Okay. Well, let's see what we can do about Jason. All right, maybe we need Jason to step out and step back into the room um, and see what we can do. But you are, I'm going to turn off your video. I am going to turn on the video and let's see what we can do with Jason. Let me see. Okay, I'm going to see what happens. Jason, there you are. Oh, can't hear you. Gonna un I don't know what's up with your with your muting. Can you hear me now? Yes. Yay. We're going to do this. Today is like Mercury is not in retrograde, but it is literally in retrograde right here in my house. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Jason, how's it going? Nice to see it's, your face. It's nice to be seen. <laughs> it's going pretty well. You know, we're in the midst of midterm. So it's a time to catch our breath a little bit here. Okay. Uh, you know, getting, getting through those first rough eight weeks has been a little yeah. rough here, but, um, you know, we're, we're doing okay. When you say it's been a rough eight weeks, why has it been a rough eight weeks? Well, I don't want to bring the crowd down too hard, but we've, we've had uh, a rash of um, homicides very oh. close to our campus. Oh, God. Uh, one on the very first morning of the first, the first day of classes. And uh, we've been rolling with a bunch of those things and dealing with uh, the bridge in India and the deaths in Korea, which are two of our three largest countries of origins for international students, combined mm -hmm. probably over well over 2,000 students from those both those countries. So reaching out to those folks and trying to support them um, has been you know a busy couple of days to begin the week. So talk to us a little bit about that town-gown relationship that you all have. You are smack in the middle of New York City. And so anything that affects New York City, which is a lot, um, affects you all. So what does that look like in practice for you in terms of how uh, you interact with your students? How are, how are your students acting? How is your community acting? When does the, the parent phone call start? What, what does that look like? Well, the parent phone calls never stop, so they're 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 pretty constant. You know, for us, it's really a dual track. I, I think we have a relatively good relationship with NYPD. Mm 
Mm -hmm. um, you know, obviously during investigations and some of the things they're doing, um, they're uh, not very much into communicating with us. Right. And uh, it's been around the news that I mean, I'm sure this is in other places too, but NYPD has been down significantly with officers. So yeah. their ability to uh, be present in a lot of spaces simultaneously is quite limited. Uh, we've had a lot of uh, violence in our uh, subway system. Um, so a lot of cops have been redirected to the subways, which take them away from closer to our campus. Right. Matter of fact, my wife and I were out Saturday night in, in our home station. We counted nine police officers uh, right in an immediate area and there was nothing happening. They were just they were just stationed there. So, um, you know, so I think that so you have that track of interacting with the NYPD. And I believe our campus buildings are cut across 13 NYPD precincts. Okay. Our yep. main precinct is uh, six, but they're all over. We have buildings in every in every borough, and um, the other part is our students, many of which do not want us interacting with NYPD in any way, shape, or form mm -hmm. for a lot of the historical and, and contemporary issues that have arisen with police intervention, uh, generally speaking, and on university campuses. But we we don't have we don't have we have basically private security, so. Uh, oftentimes we butt up against students who are calling for help from NYPD and, and other students who do not want to see NYPD inside mm -hmm. facilities on campus, which when we can have a conversation, we're able to kind of explain it. But oftentimes there isn't necessarily a conversation, if you know what I mean. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I can absolutely empathize with that. When I was at Boston University, we had some of the same issues is that when do you call the Boston University Police versus when do you call 911 and talk to the folks at Boston Police and how does that interaction happen? And I think there's an important conversation there. Um, we do have an opportunity to continue that conversation down the road, but I think that as we are looking at, and, um, Gage and I were actually on a panel um, this past week. Gage was kind enough to be on one of my panels for one of my classes that I'm teaching. Um, and we were talking about uh, safety, security, and policy on campus, um, along with a couple of other panelists, and the issue around policing did come up. And that's it's constantly something that, uh, as we're looking at our campuses, how uh, students interact and what kind of, um, let's just say, lineage they bring with them to campus in terms of their attitudes about policing. I remember back, uh, in the before before times, millions of years ago, um, when we would have uh, campus policing on our campus um, and our students who came from an international lens where maybe the police in their home country were not people that were super safe to be around, that was something we had to be super intentional about in terms of how do you introduce students from certain countries to a police department that is supposed to be here to help you. And that was back probably early to mid 90s. Now it's uh, more uh, more broad that students uh, don't feel comfortable with the police, uh, regardless of where they're from, and especially right. students of color from our own country. So right. it's absolutely something that is important for all of us as we are looking at managing these issues on our campus. So um, our heart goes out to the city of New York and especially to your community, Jason, because um, anything that happens around you becomes part of your campus. And that's one of the great things about being in New York. Part of your campus is you are surrounded by New York, but it's going to be a, 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 shall we say, a challenge as well. Um, so this, the good reasons are also the challenging reasons. So I wanted to spend some time uh, today talking about two areas about access to college. Um, one about Pell eligible students and what uh, the the reality that the number of opportunities for Pell eligible students is actually going down to find campuses that are actually affordable to them. Um, and then the other thing we're going to talk about later is legacy admission. And I think it has uh, there's. There's some connective tissue here. Anytime you're talking about access, uh, it does create an environment where you are um, kind of looking at various poles of access. What does access actually look like? Um, and so the uh, issue around affordable options for Pell Grant students. Um, so there was a, 
a report that was done recently by the National College Attainment Network. Um, and this is from uh, Inside Higher Ed. I want to make sure I credit them. According to the article, Pell Grant recipients are increasingly finding fewer affordable options for college and higher financial unmet needs, according to the new analysis from the National College Attainment Network. Nationally, 24% of public four-year colleges or universities were considered affordable for the average Pell Grant recipient, along with 40% of two-year public community colleges. The National College Attainment Network considers a college or university to be affordable if the total cost of attendance plus $300 for emergency expenses, which that gives me a, like literally a heart attack hearing someone say $300 for emergency expenses when you and I, we, we all know that even just replacing a computer is more than, far more than $300. Um, and let's not talk about how much it is for rent. Um, for emergency expenses doesn't exceed the sum of financial aid, family contributions, and student wages. The association, which works, which works to close equity gaps in post-secondary attainment, has tracked college affordability data using this formula since 2018. Um, at four-year institutions, the average Pell Grant recipient needed an additional $2,627 to pay for tuition fees and living expenses for the 2019-2020 academic year, the most recent year with complete data at the time of the report's release. Um, according to this, this is not good results, as we can see. And if you um, go into a little bit more digging in terms of what the College Attainment Network put out there, they actually created a map where you can see the entire country and you can count, you can uh, look at states and see how the states are doing. And it's interesting in that when you look at different states, especially in states where the number of private institutions are out there in terms of who they are, how many students are applying to and attending those schools, uh, in those private heavy inst uh, states, you see less and less uh, Pell uh, uh, affordability, which should not surprise you. Um, but other states where you're looking at, you know, like New Mexico, for instance, I'm looking at that state where it is it is in a better situation. They've put a lot more money into or a lot more opportunity for students to go to these state institutions. Um, but when you're looking at states like New York, where you are, Jason, and Massachusetts, where I am, there's a lot less opportunity for these Pell-eligible students to attend a place that can actually allow for them to find their way um, into an affordable institution. Um, when I sent this out to all of you, I wanted you all to start to think about what does this mean for access? What does this actually mean for our students? Um, we've talked about this before. Pay, Gage is like the poster child on, on the show about how she was able to actually go to school for, you know, like a buck 50 and a coupon. Um, but, you know, it allows for us to, to really take... <laughs> It's like, I didn't say there were coupons that you got out of a pack of cigarettes or something. It's just a coupon, right? Um, but it's like, but it allows for us to really look at this and say, and we know that Pell has not caught up and has not taken, let's not even caught up. It's not kept pace with the cost of, of uh, affording college and universities. The one glimmer of this is that the two-year institutions are there as an option. But I think one of the problems in my mind is that there is a very convoluted way in most states to get from two-year institution to your four-year institution. So a student who really wants to go from two to four, there's not a direct path in some states. It also could take more than four years to finish up a degree if they start at a two-year and go on to a four-year institution. Um, I'd love to ask you guys, when you saw this, you saw the numbers going down, you know that uh, we all are talking about access. If you actually could sit down with someone at the Department of Education or someone who could actually listen as far as this is concerned, maybe a legislator or something like that, or even at your own institution, what are some of the things that maybe the report or where we're going in terms of considering what is access look like? Where, where are some missing pieces here? What are we not talking about um, as far as building that bridge of Pell eligibility? And what are your um, concerns moving forward? And I'll, I'll let anyone who wants to start, start. 
You know, Laura, something that, that stuck out to me, and I'm here looking at the article that I printed out, um, I think it's near the near the bottom, it's there are smatterings of more liberal states, there are smatterings of more conservative states, it's parts of New England, it's part of the West Coast, it's part of the Southeast, and it really, to me, I think makes it think it's not, a, it's not as much of a political atmosphere as I would have initially thought. Mm. And for me, if I had the chance to drive down to DC, or maybe I could drive over to Montpelier, walk in the door and someone says hi to me by name, because we're a small place, um, and come in and say, you know, it's all it's all about the money. We yeah. need, you know, students yeah. need more. I'm not saying the institutions need more, but how are we going to have act, have accessible and equitable programs? Right. Um, I'm, I'm surprised that for the, the least affordable states are two here in New England. Mm-hmm. Um, and like for a third of the states in New England and Maine and Massachusetts aren't doing great. They're at about 50%. New Hampshire, I think, is zero. And Rhode Island is pretty close to zero. And even Vermont is 20%. Right. Um, you know, and I think a big question of it is money. And I, I wonder if it's another indicator of the continued kind of slow downward spiral of haves and have-nots in mm-hmm. higher ed. And is this one more nail in a proverbial coffin that something, you know, something has to change or something is going to implode or explode. I'm, I'm not really sure which at this point. Well, and I think going to that, we've had a show, we've had some shows in the past where we've talked about that kind of continuation from community college to four year and the institutions that do the best don't always come from blue states. The, the states where they do the best oftentimes are red states where you see this longstanding tradition. So for instance, in Kentucky, you can start in um, a community college and go straight in, and there is not that kind of bump in the road. And we need to be paying attention to that. But I think there's also a piece of this is that um, New Hampshire, as we've talked about before, puts in probably some of the worst, I think they were 49th the last time I checked, um, of state um, contribution to higher ed. So your states where you're not contributing to these state institutions um, is going to be a problem from a Pell uh, standpoint. It's a problem for everybody. So it doesn't allow for us to have that. Um, when you have a, an, a state, whether it be you know Massachusetts or some of the states where, where private institutions tend to be your backbone of what people can select from, um, you also have that issue. So until you have a more robust state system that the state's actually contributing to, you're going to have some some concerns. Uh, Jason, Gage, any thoughts there? Oh, yeah. You know, I think I find higher ed to be just this endlessly interesting um, industry where you have um, a lot of disincentives to make higher ed affordable and a lack of overall pressure mm-hmm. from the outside world, quote unquote, to make life, you know, make these educations more affordable. Um, none of the schools I've worked for are affordable. I looked on the list. Um, and, you know, there, there doesn't seem to be a compelling case to increase Pell, mm-hmm. um, aside from the fact that we should be increasing Pell. Um, you know, so... And the whole idea that, you know, is this, is higher ed a public good? That seems to have left um, our communities decades ago. Mm-hmm. And, you mm-hmm. know, it keeps coming up. But, you know, I, I, I'm not sure we're fighting the right battle or we're fighting a losing battle when we try to resurrect the ideas of the origins of Pell Grant are X, Y, and Z. Uh, well, you know, that's true. But at the same time, yeah. states like California and L- others were paying almost 100% of the cost of people attending college. Right. And we also have this cultural piece in the United States, maybe other countries, but we're talking about the U.S., where we downgrade the education at community colleges. Right. And there's not a concerted effort to really market the reality of the lack of variance between the quality of education one would receive uh, at a community college versus a four-year school, public or private, especially in the first two to three years of, a, of one's education in most majors. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've worked at schools in Massachusetts, Rhode Island, where I would meet adjunct faculty. Um, and there's one famous case that I won't name the schools, but this professor was teaching an uh, intro to psych course at the community college, an Ivy League school, 
a public four-year school and a private four-year school, same book, same teacher, yep. same class size, yep. same um, syllabus. Mm-hmm. And the faculty member was making widely different uh, uh, incomes off those classes. But the education that's happening in that room is the same. And the students are paying so much more money at the Ivy than they are at the community college, but they're getting the same psych 101 right. education. And that's a dirty secret mm-hmm. that no one really wants out there. Right. Now, the community college don't want it out there because then it would uh, push up maybe uh, salaries that they can't afford. And you know the ones who are charging a premium, like at NYU or other schools, they don't want that out there because it seems to cheapen the education. So we have these different types of arguments to keep our dirty laundry a secret, which I think also impacts the cost of education and the perceived quality of education because we're not willing as an industry to reconcile those pieces for the student's benefit and for our community's benefit. Right. I want to highlight a book I'm in the middle of right now. I would highly recommend it to folks. Uh, It's by Will Bunch. He's from the Philadelphia Inquirer. Um, And it's called After the Ivory Tower Falls. And he talks a lot about what is the public good of higher ed. And um, it's not just about affordability, but he does talk about it's 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 this layer of affordability as well as politics and the lack of discourse on campuses. And, you know, he highlights uh, some campuses that are private schools in the middle of very Trump country type of places where there's a real push pull in terms of what's the culture like around the school. And there's this like, you know, liberal enclave on campus, but then what happens around it and the people around it are people who feel that the economy and politics and various aspects of life have left them kind of falling behind and ignored a great book, highly recommend it. But some of what you're talking about, Jason, and this idea of what is the public good, as I've been thinking a lot lately, is this idea we keep going back to, let's go back to to the Pell. And do we just kind of keep adding to the Pell? Do we we create a, oh, let's celebrate Pell, but we also need to make sure that we are adding to it. And what does all this mean? Or do we have to just break it? Um, I've been thinking a lot about some of the things that we continue to try to modify. And sometimes you just have to say, okay, it's done. We're done. We're going to, we're going to put it aside. We're going to start again. Um, and not necessarily, uh, break it, but maybe just say, okay, we've, we, we're now at the, the other end of it. It's, it's lost its viability, anything more of kind of kind of monkeying with it and jerry-rigging it is only going to make it more complicated. And we see that a lot in higher ed. We see that a lot, whether it be around um, Title IX regs or it be around financial aid regulations or anything like that. Nothing, nothing seems to line up um, and we're constantly fighting it to make it work. Um, and I wonder if maybe it's time to say maybe maybe Pell is not the answer. We need to find a new Pell. We need to find a new solution. And what does that look like? Gage, what are your thoughts? Well, a couple things on that on that particular question. I have to say that in today's environment, I'm pessimistic about creating something new, innovative, and useful. So one of the things that happens to us is that we we limp along with Pell, whether it works well for us or not, because it's the best we've got. And quite frankly, it may be the best we can get right now. And so I, I know that I feel pretty pessimistic saying that, but I find it, I mean, it's definitely one of those, don't get rid of it until we've got something to put in its place that's at least as good, if not better. Mm-hmm. And so I mean, I'm really cautious about that, even though I don't disagree that at some point what you need to do to make things better is blow it up. But you also have to have a way forward. And I'm not not completely sold on our way forward right now. Okay. The other, the other thing that struck me as y'all were talking, and you were talking, we were talking a little bit about the two-year to four-year pipeline mm-hmm. or lack thereof. And, and I'll just speak for Texas because that's what I know best. But... Um, 
when we were at UTSA, which was definitely um, an access school, meant to be an access school, a regional large institution, part of the University of Texas system, and we wanted to work with the, the local community college district to create an easy way for um, students who completed their two years to come into UTSA. So we created, worked with them to create some pathways. We worked with ways to do what was called reverse transfer to take some of our courses and put back on a transcript so they could get an associate's degree. Because part of what happens is there's conflicting, um, there's not only conflicting financial streams, there's conflicting accountability measures. Yep. And so on the one hand, we want students to go from two to four years. So we get credit for that, but we really need people to get an associate's degree. Well, those two things are not necessarily lined up right, that I right. can get into the two year and there's some stuff that I wouldn't need to take, you know, that are part of the associate's degree and vice versa. Mm -hmm. So we buy those using those two measures and creating those two processes we get in the way of students making an easy transition. And then, at least in Texas, there's a significant jump from community college tuition to higher to four-year college tuition. Yeah. So I, I think that's a really good point. And that, you know, then this, some of this, oh, I think we lost you, Gage. Oh, how do we put that into the mix? Right. Well, and I think that, you know, some this also goes off to somewhat of what Jason was saying about this idea of, you know, you know, the dirty little secret about faculty and adjuncts jumping around and this class, this class, this class. You know, I was um, talking to a president at Mojave Community College recently. He was also a guest speaker for one of my classes. And they've done some interesting stuff around their uh, curriculum to make sure that the students come out with what they need for what they want to do. So if they are, say, um, a student in a, a a nursing program and they have to take math, it's math for nursing students. It's not the same math that you will need to say, say the student after two years at Mojave needs to go to, wants to go to um, Arizona State, maybe they'll have to take math again or potentially it, it meets a criteria, but it's a math that they need for the work that they are going to do for the end goal that they're heading towards. And I think that we just, oh, go ahead. Surprise, surprise, that leads to higher grades and better outcomes in the right. classroom because it seems relevant to the student. Correct. And that and that's the other thing about all of this. I think what, what, what I get frustrated at and that we spend a lot of time talking about the opportunities that community college provides for students to maybe get that leg up, get out there, do some things that are a two-year out kind of program where you're loading up on gen ed classes and that sort of thing. But those gen ed students who are then going to go on to their flagship university or a state institution are looking for something very different than the student who is going for a two-year degree or a one-year program that is going to have them qualified to do a specific type of work. And what I see too much of is students going into the community college kind of pipeline, taking those gen ed classes that ultimately they get frustrated with. I just want to be able to be a welder. I want to be able to go off and do my nursing program. I want to go off and do these things. But the problem is the institutions don't have the robust size of a faculty. They don't have enough courses opportunities. So they, so they break, they make this, what should be broad uh, opportunities for classes more narrow. Um, and ultimately the students may not get what they need. To Gage's point, we want them to be able to come through and feel like they have uh, done something that they care about and that they actually feel confidence in. Um, and they feel like they are actually doing good work. So I think all of this is quite related. I think the other thing as far as that, that Pell eligibility, where I get nervous shifting to the Pell is when the Pell is only so much, doesn't hit that that nugget of being able to be affordable and then the students go into the parent plus loan environment and we've had this conversation before the parent plus loan is you know people talk about proprietary lending i the the parent plus loan is probably my least favorite 
pushed out option um, that campuses do because you end up not only putting the student in debt, but the family in debt. Um, thoughts on the parent plus loan and their relationship to Pell? Any other thoughts on this? Well, I guess my reaction um, is when we talk about students being fully packaged or getting full packages and getting more sophisticated on that definition, because many schools that say that, it means that they're taking out the maximum allowed right. on, in these different loan options, which is problematic. And we also you know, know that many of our families uh, qualify for will only qualify you know, for private loans at such high interest rates because of their own uh, credit rating and, and those types of things. And you know, it's, it's education on the part of, of to the public about the choices that they actually have and how to navigate this, which is, which is not happening. It's not happening uh, at scale for sure. Um, but then it's also sitting there saying, how do you control the pricing models that some of these places are having. So, for example, um, I've worked as a chief enrollment officer at a couple of places, and if the Pell went up, um, I would certainly get pressure from, at the very least, trustees, if not people inside uh, the university, to increase tuition mm-hmm. um, to make sure we get all that increase, right? That we are still going to maximize loans. Um, we're still going to, and we're going to get all of that Pell grant. So we would change our model as we see the amount of grant money students are receiving. Yep. Um, so there's nothing really in the in the works to stop that piece. Right. Right. And you know I've been in states, uh, well in Ohio, where the governor for I think eight years. I, I mean I'm gone now, so I don't know if he kept doing it. If they kept doing it, would not allow universities to increase tuition. Right. So which sounds great, and tuition doesn't increase. But, you know, we can mess with the uh, other side of it, how we package the students with the financial aid. So we use less uh, university dollars. So essentially, we give ourselves a pay raise mm-hmm. uh, in our budgets because we are not allowed to charge more. So the gap is shouldered by more students. Right. Interestingly enough, and the data that uh, was shared for uh, for today did not show this, but I, I imagine so many of these schools that are actually still affordable have lots of empty seats, right? They Their enrollment goals are much higher than what their current enrollment is. <clears throat> and that's also the sad piece, right? Like we have these opportunities that could be affordable to folks across the country, maybe not every state, maybe not every community, like you mentioned earlier, Laura, but those who do are most likely not full. Mm-hmm. And that also saddens me because for these many schools who are not affordable, who also are um, have empty seats. Wouldn't it be uh, an interesting thought process if affordable schools were full right. and those that were not affordable but not also highly ranked or highly endowed had gaps? What, what, what would the marketplace tell them to do with regard to what they're charging and their own fiscal health? So, right. you know. It's yeah, a hard reality of the market, isn't it, Jason? Absolutely. And I think uh, it's very interesting to see what the trends are as far as where people want to go to school. That's in a whole other piece. And um, it actually relates to our topic next week. We have uh, Nicole Laporte, who is a reporter for um, Town & Country Magazine, as well as uh, written several books on the media um, and technology uh, and works for Fast Company uh, magazine as well. And she wrote an article recently that ran in town and country called Southern Exposure, how college applicants, including those from liberal northern enclaves, are flocking to traditional southern schools where the vibe is more than more rah-rah than radical reckoning. So we'll be talking to her next week about that. And the reason I bring that up is that, as you said, Jason, there are campuses that are not full and campuses that are full are actually marketing themselves in a specific way. And that marketing not only is about what people see when they're walking around campus, but it's also what they see in their financial aid um, package. That is a big part of it. 
and that is a, a an aspect of this as far as how your enrollment office is maybe setting the tone as far as what you are putting out there in front of people. Um, so I think those things all all make sense. Um, so it's uh, it's important stuff. Um, I want to switch gears. We were talking uh, earlier about because uh, we're getting up at about 20 minutes of. I also want to tease out that next week we have our Southern Exposure episode. Um, the following week, we're going to be talking about unionization on campus. We're specifically going to look at unionization of resident assistants, as well as other uh, aspects of that. We have a uh, union attorney, Al O'Connell, uh, coming to us from Paul Roman, which is one of the top uh uh, legal um, and uh, labor legal minds here, excuse me, in Massachusetts. Um, we were trying to get folks from Columbia, from Wheaton, and from other places that have had this happening on campus. Clearly, they don't want to talk about it yet. Um, so we're going with, with a labor attorney who's going to talk to us a bit about what that is looking like as far as the, the labor movement why the labor movement is coming to campus and what people should be on the lookout for. So that will be coming up in two weeks. Um, so I wanna talk a little bit about, uh, for the rest of the hour, about legacy admissions. Um, legacy admissions are something that we know is under scrutiny um, and, uh, you know, it is more under scrutiny. And that was actually, if you listen to some of the testimony yesterday at, uh, with the um, Supreme Court, legacy admissions came up time and time and time again. And you can't, to the minds of some of these people on the Supreme Court, you can't pull away this idea of affirmative action without looking at legacy. Um, and there is a lot of uh, data out there showing that, you know, legacy admissions brings people to your campus who may not be as well qualified as some other people. Um, it creates inequity um, on campuses where equity and access were are supposedly of uh, concern. Um, I, you know, we all have people in our lives. This past weekend, I was with some friends. Uh, I'm not going to say which school one of them was an alum of, but he went out there and he started buying tickets to football games again and started uh, buying extras to have, make sure that they have available to tailgating. And that, you know, as he said, I want people to see I'm spending money at my alma mater um, because my friend's kids aren't getting in anymore. And I was like, that it's gonna take more than a couple of football tickets, folks. Uh, so thoughts on this, what does it look like, you know, can we get away from legacy admission? Is that actually going to happen? Um, or are we going to end up in a situation where it's that side door again, uh, where the legacies can come in through the side door if you have the right something else, maybe a side door with a certain pass? Um, so thoughts on this, I, I want to start with Gage because she's in the land of big football, um, and, uh, she might have an, 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 some thoughts on this. Well, I'm, I was sitting here trying to remember the details. It wasn't strictly legacy, um, in the sense of, you know, I'm a fifth generation Longhorn. Those, those do exist, but there was, um, a concern raised about legislators having backdoor access. Mm, mm. Um, enough so that there was an investigation by the Board of Regents and a change in policy. And I can't remember all the details. It's been quite a while now. But, you know, the reality is, as long as I've been in education and in public education, it has not been uncommon for a legislator to call and say, you know, so-and-so's a friend. And, um, you know, a thumb gets put on the scale, right? So this isn't just wealthy alumni. Um, influence into the admissions process at highly sought after yeah. institutions is, is real. And it's not, and it's, and it can be surprising what institution it is, right? I mean, UT Austin's not surprising, but, but, um, but it can be your local community school that's really important. And I'm the local state legislature. I mean, or I'm the big donor. So, I mean, it isn't just the big schools that have to figure out how to deal with this. 
because, um, you know, the clean answer is, you know, we don't do that. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's really hard to say in a lot of circumstances. I mean, it just really is for people in the president's or the senior admissions person's chair. And it was really interesting because when I, UTSA, when I was there, moved from, you know, y'all come to more selective. And the reality was we started getting different kinds of calls. We weren't highly selective. We weren't, but we, we had standards that, you know, now some people who three years before could have just walked on in the door might not be able to. And so one of the conversations I had with my admission staff is you need to be prepared for some different kinds of calls than you're used to getting and how we're going to handle that and really think about what that is like, because that, that desire for access to something that is seen as highly desirable, people right. who have influence will want to use influence. And, you know, it, it, it is an interesting ethical question to ask in the admissions process. And, you know, the, the good news about traditional legacy is it's not a secret. Right. Some of these um, donor or legislator um, things are meant to be kept secret. And that's a whole other animal, right? Right, right. So, it's surprising how quickly you can, you can find yourself in a quagmire, even if you're not at the most desirable institution. When right. you're in the big ones, you're kind of used to it. You know how to handle it. But sometimes it can creep on, up on people because access um, and being able to get people access is a form of power. And there's, you know, I've worked at some institutions where literally it was, it was, there was like, if they have this next to their name, it's a special, send it to this person. Okay. And, you know, those kind of things happen. I think to your point, Gage is absolutely correct. This is not only whatever is desirable comes from the person who's desiring. Okay. And so whether it doesn't have to be Harvard, it can be um, other institutions that are either location, affiliation, whatever the case may be, those those things become desirable. Um, Corey, what are thoughts from uh, from you on this one? Yeah, you know, Laura, I'm over here thinking um, of really small rural niche places and institutions that I've worked where getting people to enroll by word of mouth gets you a dozen students that's and that's not a, a tactic or a tool that you can bank on so you know folks do reach out to family connections they do have alumni they really engage those folks um, so I could see and, and I know those folks using some of those tools to connect with them but I'm also sitting here thinking we can't necessarily accept those practices but then say the ivies of the world the highly selectives of the world but you can't do that so I don't think there's a way to have it or to cherry pick or be selective, no pun intended, about how our our friends in enrollment management use that. I think, you know, when I first read this, it immediately stuck out of the highly selective institutions, the, the, the clickbait that probably so many of us see. I think that's what people have issues with. And I know many enrollment management folks on other campuses who are like, you know, if I know a parent or an alum and they've got a kid, I'm definitely gonna call them. But, but and I think people in their gut know that that's a little bit different. But I don't think there's a policy way to you know differentiate between that. I don't think America is ever going to get to that point, whether it's federally or from state to state. Um, so I don't know what a good solution kind of moving forward is because I do see you know I think there's some value in it. But I think also you know you're trying to land the big fish of those highly selective institutions misusing it. Well, and I think you have these, uh, one of the things that we'll see when we have the conversation next week is when you talk about some of these um, elite students going to these Southern institutions, every single one of them was, you know, and this was, I'm going to ask the the reporter about this, is that, you know, you talk about these students being really excited to attend X university's honors college. It's always the honors college at, it's not just that school, it's the honors college. Um, and so that also opens up that idea of what it what is the side door? What does it look like? You not only get into Auburn, but you get into Auburn's, you know, college uh, in terms of the the um, 
in terms of the honors college. So, I mean, those are the things that we have to keep in mind. Jason, I see you giggling. So what is it about this that, you know, do you think that this is going to be intersected with access in terms of what are we going to be told to do by the Supreme Court? Or do you think that the institutions are going to continue to just kind of have these opportunities to find their side door in come hook or by crook? Yeah, uh, choice two. I mean, I think a lot of what Gage shared was uh, my experience at uh, less selective institutions, that there's always something or somebody. But I've I've been thinking about this in two different ways. um, One is, let's go 20 years from now, um, many of these elite schools have diversified in ways that that they were not 100 years ago, whether it's Asian students, uh, and some different socioeconomic backgrounds. So the idea that some of these institutions would maintain that level of diversity in the student body um, in the face of whatever happens in the next 20 years, and then the legacies are different, right? So I think the other part of a lot of folks' knee-jerk reaction to legacy, they're thinking a lot of times, and statistically is probably accurate today, that they are upper middle class or wealthy white families. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, you know, that may not necessarily be the case in 20 or 30 years. Uh, my institution, for example, is 30% um, international students. I think we're, this year's class is 25% self-identify as white. So, there, so we don't have a majority white population and haven't had that in a very long time. Mm-hmm. So 20 years from now, the legacy may look very different from their background. Maybe economically, it would be similar given um, um, the institution, but background-wise, it'll be different. Now, the flip side of it, and I think something Corey alluded to, my last institution, we were very public about legacy. If you were uh, an alum of Ohio University and lived out of state, we would give you in-state tuition. Uh, There were lots of benefits of being an alum. Now, we had empty seats that we were trying to fill, and certainly being in a Rust Belt state, the high school graduation rates in the state were small. And we also, so our sell to our board and to the state was if we can start to create a foothold in some of these out of state institutions and these students are, yeah, technically legacy, but they then have a good experience, we then begin to uh, get more applications and ultimately more students from these states who will not be uh, legacies and will be paying out-of-state tuition. Mm -hmm. So certainly there's maybe room for this at schools that are trying to fill seats, and the way they're filling it is leaning on positive experience from past generations of students. So um, so it's a difficult piece because I'm sure there are literally hundreds of struggling institutions that would love to lean publicly and, and more heavily on legacies especially from a time when an institution was um, um, a different experience and maybe even a more positive experience for their Mm -hmm. community. Well, and I wonder how much of this, uh, I I really appreciate what you're saying because I think I wonder how much this is where we're really looking at places like the Harvards and the USC and places that are, are highly sought after, the places that were probably part of the, um, Operation, uh, what was it? The, the 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 admission scandal, where we were talking about about that, yeah. and that you know varsity blues, varsity blues. Thank you. And so when you look at that, but then you look at the institutions where actually, you know what? If someone wants to come in and they're an alum and they had a great time and their kids a little lower than we would have usually expect, well, all right, well let's let's give them a shot. Um, so it's it's that idea of what is an elite place, and your point about what does legacy look like? Will an HBCU have a different conversation about legacy than a predominantly white institution? Will a minority serving institution have a different conversation about legacy versus uh, a predominantly white institution? I think there's that conversation too, because when you look at some of these other institutions, they say, you know, we want people who are bought in to who we are, what we're all about, what is the tradition of this institution, and being part of, if you're a third generation Spelman graduate, fantastic. We will do our best, okay? Um, so I think that there's this is a broader conversation. And I think right now, the conversation is very white elite 
kind of focus and not as broad as it potentially could be. And there's more opportunity here to have a debate about legacy versus not legacy and what that actually looks like in practice. I think that we're going to have to have that conversation, especially in lieu of some of the conversation that I, that I was listening to yesterday with the with the Supreme Court, because they're really pushing this. They're, they were really jumping on this idea of legacy admissions and what is this, what does all of this look like in terms of long term of affirmative action and how does affirmative action and legacy kind of run up against each other and what does it actually look like? And I think it's going to be a, a difficult conversation moving forward. I'm not feeling like the affirmative action piece is going to be upheld um, based on what was coming out of yesterday's conversation. Um, also knowing that uh, Justice Jackson is recusing herself from the final decision because she served on on a, a board um, at Harvard. So, you know, she's doing an ethical thing, which is recusing herself, which is also interesting since there are some people who should be doing ethical things, but they're not. Um, but that's, yeah, that's a different show. Um, so, so there you go. Um, I want to thank you guys uh, for this conversation. I think it's super important, but I also would like to end today's show with you all and uh, thinking about and giving our listeners with some ideas on what are some of the things that we should be caring about right now um, in terms of enrollment, uh, in terms of access, in terms of what's out there. Maybe it's about Pell, maybe it's about affirmative action, but what are some of the things that you think we need to be caring about that uh, that you would be pushing people to pay attention to? So um, I'm going to go with uh, Jason, then Gage, then Corey, and then we'll sign out. So when I interviewed for the job I have here, um, my president said to me, as long as you remember the New York Times is your local paper, you'll probably do okay here. And I'm like, seriously? <laughs> so I thought that was funny until it actually is your local paper. So the thought I want to leave folks with is pay attention to the types of schools that are, are um, cited in these national publications and who are facing uh, these court challenges because they typically are Ivy Plus mm -hmm. or top resource institutions. And you can add up uh, all the all the enrollments of those campuses and it will pale in comparison to the vast majority of higher education. And we need to look at policies and approaches that serve the vast majority of our institutions and not um, and not the minority of institutions. They have their issues, challenges, opportunities, all that stuff. But um, you know, it's so focused on the Harvards and Chapel Hills and Austins and NYU's of the world and less so to where the majority of our students are currently and can potentially seek higher education. And I wish we would spend more time on that. I absolutely agree, 1,000%. And I also want to say that higher ed often listens to those canaries in the coal mine more than they listen to the people outside the coal mine, and that's really too bad. Uh, Gage, you're next. I think I want to talk about how we think about who we invite in and what success is. So what is success that we're measuring that says, I absolutely believe we shouldn't admit students that we don't believe can be successful here. And then we you know, take their money and send them on their way with nothing. And yet I also believe our de definitions of what success looks like to tell you to predict success in the future are imperfect, right? And so how do we think about this idea of making it possible for people to be here and be successful here. And, you know, I, I worked with a, a provost a long time ago, a vice provost, who there were um, numerically and statistically students that we admitted that you would say didn't have a chance for success. And his mantra was, we admitted them, they're ours. Mm -hmm. And it's our job to help them be successful here. Yep. And so if we take that as a given, that's a big gift. That's a big gift. I understand that. Then we can look differently at who we bring in. And then we say it's our responsibility to help them be successful. Now, granted, you, you and I both know what that means. It doesn't mean we hold their hands. It doesn't mean we make them get up in the morning. It doesn't mean all those things they have to learn for themselves. But we create processes and opportunities for people to be successful. And whether that's 
managing money or whether that's understanding how to how to take the right math course or or whatever it may be all of this is about how we who we invite into higher education and how we help them be successful when they're there and whether it's taking away their money worries or supporting them through academic problems or understanding that emergencies rarely cost only $300 um whatever it is as an industry we struggle with that whole mm-hmm. issue and 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 that all of these questions you've asked today are about that who gets in and how do we help them find their path to success absolutely 100% the important thing is the process and we got to get them through in the right way okay and corey you're the last word yeah, Laura, what's on my mind is, you know, early decision decisions are coming up, you know, the, the, over the next couple of days or the next few weeks. And to really kind of be understanding of what's going on for our folks over in enrollment management of what's going on with them as far as welcoming new folks coming in. And, you know, quite frankly, probably so many folks on campuses have been at the open houses. They're doing extra hours. They're coming in on a Saturday for a few hours to talk and schmooze and have, you know, a Sodexo sandwich or a Chartwell salad. So thank you for for stomaching those. Um, But all of that work really goes into creating the next class, especially where we're having really important conversations about access, who gets in, what are the connections that staff and faculty are creating with those future folks. Um, so those are just kind of a couple things that are on uh, that are on my mind. I think we've had a great conversation here to kick us off for November. Thank you, Corey. And I want to thank everybody for being here. You are listening to Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe. We will be back here next week on Tuesday uh, to talk to re- reporter Nicole Laporte from uh, Town & Country and about her story, Southern Exposure, about college applications. And I can't wait for that conversation. I hope you're able to join us. Remember, you can always subscribe here on the Fireside Network and you can listen to the replay on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio Podcasts. Have a great week, everybody, and get out there and learn something.